You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. A month before he died in April 1994, former President Richard Nixon wrote a letter to then-President Bill Clinton offering what Clinton later called wise counsel, especially with regard to Russia. The contents of that letter have now been declassified by the Clinton Presidential Library and appear prophetic. In the seven-page letter, dated March 21, 1994, and discussed by history professor Luke Nichter in the Wall Street Journal, Nixon gave a blunt assessment of the political situation in Russia, predicting accurately that relations between Moscow and Kyiv would deteriorate and that someone like Putin could come to power. Nixon, 81 at the time, wrote the letter after he returned from a two-week trip to Russia and Ukraine. While the former president is infamous for departing the White House amid scandal in 1974, his legacy includes being the architect of détente with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. In 1972, Nixon became the first U.S. president to visit Moscow, where he signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty with Soviet General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev. Nixon spent the years following his presidency taking foreign trips on behalf of the United States and offering counsel based on decades of experience to guide U.S. policy in the post-Cold War era. Nixon considered the survival of political and economic freedom in Russia the most important foreign policy issue the nation will face for the balance of this century. Street Journal opinion. The Ukraine war wouldn't have surprised Richard Nixon. A declassified 1994 letter to Bill Clinton shows how well the former president understood the Russians. By Luke A. Nichter. When Bill Clinton eulogized Richard Nixon on April 27, 1994, he spoke of the former president's wise counsel, especially with regard to Russia, based on our last phone conversation and the letter he wrote me just a month ago. For nearly 30 years, the content of that letter remained a secret. Thanks to its declassification this week through Mr. Clinton's presidential library, it is hidden no longer. What is most striking about the seven-page single-space letter dated March 21, 1994, is that Nixon anticipated a more belligerent Russia, the rise of someone like Vladimir Putin, and worsening relations between Moscow and Kiev. Nixon, who was 81, had just returned from a two-week trip to Russia and Ukraine. In 1972, he became the first sitting president to visit Moscow, where he signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. After leaving office, he continued to have access to elites in the governments and opposition leaders around the world. That Mr. Clinton was a Democrat and Nixon a Republican was no different. No difference. The ultimate Cold Warrior was an elder statesman interested in the contours of the post-Cold War era. Nixon warned that Boris Yeltsin's brief experiment with democracy was already over. Quote, as one of Yeltsin's first supporters in this country, and as one who continues to admire him for his leadership in the past, I have reluctantly, reluctantly concluded that his situation has rapidly deteriorated since the elections in December, and that the days of his unquestioned leadership of Russia are numbered. Nixon wrote to Clinton, His drinking bouts are longer, and his periods of depression are more frequent. 
Most troublesome, he can no longer deliver on his commitments to you and other Western leaders in an increasingly anti-American environment in the Duma and in the country. Nixon also said that Moscow's relationship with Kiev would worsen. Though the dynamic has improved during Yeltsin's tenure, the situation in Ukraine was, quote, highly explosive. If it is allowed to get out of control, Nixon warned, it will make Bosnia look like a PTA garden party. The former president didn't think American diplomats were taking the issue seriously enough. Quote, because of the importance of Ukraine, I reluctantly urge that you immediately strengthen our diplomatic representation in Kiev, he wrote. It was equally important that the U.S. anticipate Yeltsin's political successor. Bush made a mistake in sticking too long to Gorbachev because of his close personal relationship. You must avoid making the same mistake in your very good personal relationship with Yeltsin. Yet Nixon wrote, it wasn't clear that the successor might who the successor might be. Quote, there is still no one who is in Yeltsin's class as a potential leader in Russia, Nixon wrote. Quote, the Russians are serious people. One of the reasons Khrushchev was put on the shelf back in 1964 is that the proud Russians became ashamed of his crude antics at the UN and in other international forums. In other words, if the U.S. didn't act promptly to cultivate Yeltsin's successor, Russia could again shift to a more nationalist, hardline leader as when Leonid Brezhnev succeeded Khrushchev. Nixon also warned Mr. Clinton about presidential personnel. Quote, I learned during my years in the White House that the best decisions I made, such as the one to go to China in 1972, were made over the objections of or without the approval of most foreign service officers, he wrote. Nixon evidently didn't think Mr. Clinton was well served by his own people. Quote, remember that foreign service officers get to the top by not getting into trouble. They are therefore more interested in covering their asses than in protecting yours. Always inspired by the big play, the lunar landing, the unilateral ending of the gold standard, and trips to China and Russia, Nixon encouraged Mr. Clinton to do the same. That would require the best ideas not be stifled by his administration. Mr. Putin has sparred with five presidents to date, but it was Nixon who saw him coming. Quote, after he died, I found myself wishing I could pick up the phone and ask President Nixon what he thought about the issue or, or that problem, particularly if it involved Russia, Mr. Clinton said in 2013. Nixon didn't live to see Mr. Putin succeed Yeltsin, but his newly declassified correspondence with Mr. Clinton showed that he wouldn't be surprised by Russia today. Luke Nictor is a professor of history at Chapman University and author of The Year That Broke Politics, Chaos and Collusion in the Presidential Election of 1968, forthcoming in August. Welcome, everybody. This is Randall Wallace, your host for, uh, for, these, for these shows. Uh, and this is a very special edition uh, that's going to run on both of our podcasts, The Richard Nixon Experience and uh, The Randall Wallace Presents Show, because this has uh, uh, been a pretty big couple of days in the legacy of Richard Dixon and uh, this exciting thing where this letter has been declassified from the Clinton uh, uh, Presidential Library. Uh, the article we just uh, played for you is from Dr. Luke Nichter, who uh, is the leading historian on President Nixon in the world today and the owner of the NixonTapes.org site that we use a lot of his uh, the tapes that he had put together and his two books on, on the Nixon tapes to put our uh, uh, podcast docu-series together 
uh, that ran from the beginning of the Nixon administration all the way through uh, to the end of Watergate and the epilogue afterwards uh, that was pretty critically acclaimed, and we're pretty proud of it. And it's the back catalog is here on this show, and we are now rebroadcasting on the Nixon uh, Experience uh, podcast site. So anyway, all that said, uh, the, the as that article alluded to, this was a pretty powerful letter that had a huge dramatic effect on uh, President Clinton and his decisions later uh, concerning Russia, and in a lot of ways, along with his book Beyond Peace, really uh, foresaw a lot of the problems that we are dealing with in the world today, 30 years ago, concerning whether we should be helping Russia um, and, and, and retooling foreign aid uh, so that uh, uh, we would strengthen the freedoms and the democracy in Russia. And if we did not do that, that consequence could be a strong man rising out of Russia uh, that could create a much more belligerent uh, uh, Russia on the world stage. And that is exactly what's happened in the form of Vladimir Putin. So um, he also, in this letter, talks about the situation in Ukraine 30 years ago and its potential to be a problem. And as you can see, this back and forth now between uh, this war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, Nixon was right. Uh, you know, hit the nail on the head. So you can't you can't get any better than that. Uh, and it just goes to show you what a brilliant president Bill uh, Richard Nixon was. And it speaks to Bill Clinton that he was listening to him. Uh, and so I thought we'd show you because this letter had been discussed, but never uh, talked about specifically. Um, uh, right there, as president, uh, when President Nixon died, because he died about a month or so after the letter was sent. Uh, it, it came on the heels of a two-week trip that he had made to Russia, to London, um, and, and to Germany overseas, and met with a lot of these world leaders, and he's reporting back in depth. And so we're going to read the seven-page letter to you, because uh, it is pretty exciting that it's, that it's now available. Um, and I will be the first to tell you that I probably butcher a few names here, uh, the Russian names that I'm not as familiar with, uh, so bear with me on that front. But we're going to read this letter to you. But but uh, first, I thought we'd listen to David Gergen, who's going to talk about the relationship between President Nixon and President Clinton from a Larry King live broadcast that was run the day of President Nixon's funeral. The growing relationship between Clinton and Nixon. Not many people knew that they talked as much as they did. Well, it's been interesting to me, Larry, that every president I've known since Richard Nixon left office has eventually found himself, some sooner than other than others, turning to Nixon to, for counsel. Because he has, I think that uh, he did bring something that we, we sometimes forget in politics today, and he, has, he had a very long-headed sense of, of uh, the office and, and, and American life and, and the world. You know, he was a man steeped in history, and as Bill will call so well, you know, this is a man who used to get up at 2 o'clock at night and read biographies of Disraeli. And uh, he, he loved that so much. But he, And I think because of his relationship with history, he looked farther forward than most documents have. And so other presidents, every president that I know has, has been calling Nixon. And Bill Clinton felt uh, very strongly toward, toward the end that he got this one letter, and he, he talked to me the night of the, 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 of the Nixon stroke. And we talked by phone, and President Clinton asked me, he said, you know if the stroke affected his mind? He said, yeah, I, I just hope it didn't touch his mind. He said, because, you know, he sent me this letter that was graphic, March 21st, 1994, from Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Dear Mr. President, 
I'm sending this report to you directly rather than through State Department channels because I learned during my years in the White House that the best decisions I made, such as the one to go to China in 1972, were made over the objections of or without the approval of most Foreign Service officers. If you have not already done so, you will find that Foreign Service officers are seldom ignorant, but almost always arrogant. When they see a report from an outsider, they invariably react by saying, quote, we knew that, there's nothing new to it in it, or the other extreme, quote, this is interesting, but we want to study it, which they proceed to do until it is forgotten. I would urge you always to remember that Foreign Service officers get to the top by not getting into trouble. They are therefore more interested in covering their asses than in protecting yours. In that spirit, I submit the following conclusions after my trip to Russia, Ukraine, Germany, and London. First, the good news. Everyone I talked to in the four countries I visited spoke with great respect for you, and in Cole's case, with genuine affection. Not one mentioned Whitewater. Some of the American media tried to get me to make a statement on it, but I turned them all off by stating that I never commented on domestic issues when I was traveling abroad. I went on to say that what was most important is that we not allow that issue or any other domestic issue to divert attention from the major foreign policy priority, the survival of political and economic freedom in Russia. I emphasize that on this issue, there should still be continued strong bipartisan support for the president's leadership. As one of Yeltsin's first supporters in this country, and as one who continued to admire him for his leadership in the past, I have reluctantly concluded that his situation has rapidly deteriorated since the elections in December, and that the days of his unquestioned leadership of Russia are numbered. Cole is the only one I met who disagrees with this view. This speaks more for Cole's loyalty to an old friend than it does to his usually brilliant political judgment. Since the December elections, Yeltsin is a changed man. His drinking bouts are longer, and his periods of depression are more frequent. Most troublesome, he can no longer deliver on his commitments to you and other Western leaders in an increasingly anti-American environment in the Duma and in the country. I expected this among opposition leaders like Zhirinovsky, Rutskoe, and Zuganov, but I found the same attitude among middle-of-the-road and liberal supporters of Yeltsin's economic and political reforms. He is still the elected head of our most important strategic partner, but those who rely on his commitments will soon find that he no longer has the political strength to deliver. Even Pickering, who is one of our top-ranked ambassadors, underestimates the danger. He told me, for example, that John Major found that Yeltsin was in good shape when he saw him on his visit to Moscow. To paraphrase George Bush, this is not deep doo-doo, it is bullshit. Major was deeply concerned about Yeltsin's conduct during their meetings. All of the British leaders that I talked to in London, from the Chancellor of the Exchequer on down, believe that Yeltsin has had it, and sharply disagreed with me when I gave my own more optimistic evaluation, insisting that I was looking through rose-tinted glasses. A year ago, Kravchuk told me that Yeltsin was better for Ukrainian-Russian relations than any of his potential opponents. This is no longer true. I asked him bluntly whether Yeltsin could survive, he said categorically, categorically and quickly, Nyet. He predicted he soon would be out of power. I asked him, how, by coup or by election? He said, neither, 
the Russian power brokers will surround him and elevate him into a highly ceremonial post, like as the Tunisians did with Bergueba. I asked him when he had reached this conclusion. He replied, right after the December elections. He said that he used used to talk to Yeltsin on the phone a couple of times a week. He has been unable to reach him at all on the phone since the elections. All this means not that you should discontinue the positive Boris-Bill relationship, which has been widely reported in the media, but that you recognize that Yeltsin plays an increasingly weak hand and that it is necessary to reach out to others who have some power now and may have all of the power sooner than we might like. Bush made a mistake in sticking too long to Gorbachev because of his close personal relationship. You must avoid making that same mistake in your very good personal relationship with Yeltsin. Understandably, you might have reservations about any criticism of your administration in the Wall Street Journal. However, the article on foreign aid to which you referred in our telephone conversation is unfortunately on target. The entire foreign aid program to Russia is a mess. This ranges from the IMF's stubbornness and stupidity in continuing to treat Russia like Upper Volta, which no longer exists, incidentally. American and Russian businessmen are ripping off the aid program shamelessly. In the past two years, Russians have sent over $25 billion to Switzerland and other safe havens. This money will not come back until there is a better climate for investment in Russia. The quick answer from those like Jeffrey Sachs that what is needed is an increase in government aid is irrelevant. Politically, the overreaction to the Ames case indicates that the Congress is looking for any excuse to vote against Russian aid. This will be doubly true during the election year. What is needed is better targeting and better administering of those programs we already have and an entirely new approach with regard to investment abroad. As you know, China has by far the highest growth rate of any major country in the world. This has been accomplished with hardly any government foreign aid whatsoever. We face the ironic fact that a communist capitalist economy in China is more attractive for foreign investment than a democratic capitalist economy in Russia. This brings me to a very painful recommendation. As I am sure you know, I share your respect and affection for Strobe Out Talbert. This goes back to the time when I totally supported his then-controversial view about Israeli-Arab relations. He is an outstanding political officer. His strong suit, however, is not economics. What we need now is a new program, such as the one we had during the Marshall Plan, where aid is administered by a top-flight businessman reporting directly to the president. Strobe has to be big enough to accept this idea and not to insist that everything go through him and his staff. It has been my experience that foreign service officers are very good in political issues, but economics is not their strong suit. Like most politicians, they knew very little about economics. Much of what they do know is wrong. I would suggest a heavyweight like Dwayne Andreas, but he would be rejected because of conflict of interest. Another possibility might be Hank Greenberg, an enormously successful international businessman and financier who, incidentally, is not only very good on Russia, but is outstanding on China. What you must avoid is a situation where some congressional committees begin holding hearings on the administration's foreign aid program. They will bring out a lot of horror stories which will lead Congress to cut the already inadequate amounts being appropriated for aid. You should beat them to the punch by naming a new administrator with instructions to clean up the mess and to concentrate not primarily on government-to-government aid, but on how Russia can, 
on a crash basis develop the protections and incentives for private investments from abroad, similar to those which have led to the Chinese economic miracle. As I am sure you agree, after a meeting with Kravchuk, the situation in Ukraine is highly explosive. It, if it is allowed to get out of control, it will make Bosnia look like a PTA garden party. Our emphasis has understandably been on the nuclear weapons issue. We should be concentrating more on what could lead to the use of arms rather than just controlling their numbers. Some increase in government aid, which you have already approved, will be helpful. But like Russia, the major challenge here is for the Ukrainian parliament, which is even worse than the Russian Duma, to provide incentives for private investment. Ukraine is an enormously wealthy country and could take off. The problem is illustrated by the fact that with all of Russia's difficulties, 35 to 40 percent of the Russian economy has been privatized. Only 2 to 5 percent of Ukraine's has been privatized. The political situation is unpredictable. Kravchuk's approval numbers are far lower than Yeltsin's, but he should never be underestimated because he is probably the most skillful politician in all the former Soviet Union. He is unusually honest for a politician. I do not refer to financial honesty, but to political honesty. When I asked him in 1991, when he was still a Gorbachev-supporting loyal communist, whether he could be elected president, he said categorically, Nyet. He says the same thing now, but he still has no one in Ukraine who is even in his league. Because of the importance of Ukraine, I reluctantly urge that you immediately strengthen our diplomatic representatives in Kiev. I asked a top American businessman who is strongly for Ukraine and pro-American for his evaluation of our embassy. He said, piss poor, with expletives deleted. I would say that based on conversations I have had with other businessmen, that our representation is pathetic. The embassy is understaffed and inadequately led. One of the difficulties is that our foreign service types love to be sent to cushy posts in London or Paris or Rome where we have overstaffed embassies. We have to get more of them into combat zones like Ukraine, where even the brightest and the best may fall, but where we have to give it our best try. You will be urged to scatter the available aid money all over the former Soviet Union. This would be a mistake. You have very limited funds. All the other nations in the near abroad are important, but Ukraine is in a different class. It is indispensable. There is still no one who is in Yeltsin's class as a potential leader in Russia, but several have the capability to be outstanding presidents or prime ministers. The prime minister, Chermenyden Yavolinsky, who next to Yeltsin is the most popular politician in Russia, Sharia, minister of the nationalities, and Shoykin, the economic minister, all except for Chermenyden are there in their 30s or early 40s should be cultivated and others like them evaluated and discreetly encouraged. Your instincts in approving my decision to see all the opposition leaders, including Zirinovsky and Rutskoy, proved to be right. Zirinovsky is a powerful political personality. I can best sum up his political astuteness by observing that while anti-Semitism for Hitler was a faith, for him it is a tactic. This may make him even more dangerous. However, when I asked Krebchuk whether he thought Zirinovsky could be elected president, he flatly said no. On the other hand, he said that the Zirinovsky phenomenon could produce a credible candidate for president. 
one who do not have Zervinovsky's baggage of being perceived as a total opportunist and sometimes even as a clown. The Russians are serious people. One of the reasons Khrushchev was put on the shelf back in 1964 is that the proud Russians became ashamed of his crude antics at the UN and in other international forums. This brings me to the tactic I would urge that we follow in dealing with Zervinovsky. Expose him rather than suppress him. Let people see what a fraud he is. And above all, divide his support rather than unite it. Letting Rushkoy out of prison actually helps Yeltsin and all the other responsible leaders. He will cut sharply into Zervinovsky's support. This will be particularly true among the military who Zervinovsky claimed voted for him 90%. Rushkoy will get over 50% of them as well as many of the Zervinovsky's other supporters who want to restore the former Soviet empire. The third reactionary force is the Communist Agrarian Coalition. Zuganov is a tough-minded, able communist leader. He told me that he did not want to go back to communism, that we cannot cross the same river twice. That, of course, is only for public consumption. Communism has been completely discredited. If there is one thing I would bet on at the present time, it is that God is alive in Russia. Communism is dead. Our overall policy, therefore, should be to keep the bad guys Zhirvanovsky, Rutskoy, and the Communists divided and to try to get the good guys, Chermiridin, Yavlinsky, Shagraya, Travkin, to coalesce, if possible, in a united front for responsible reform. I had not met Cole and was enormously impressed by him. I can see why you rate him as by far the best leader in Europe. From our media, I had the impression that he was a provincial clod. I found that he exudes political strength and charisma. Very few give him a chance to win. I believe, however, if he is able to keep his party together and if the opposition starts quarreling among themselves as they usually do, he has a shot. It is certainly in our interest that he survive. In sum, political and economic freedoms may survive in Russia even with our help. It will certainly fail without our help. I wish you the very best as you continue to provide the leadership we need on the most important foreign policy issue the nation will face for the balance of this century. Sincerely, Richard Nixon. Here now is the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. President Nixon opened his memoirs with a simple sentence. I was born in a house my father built. Today we can look back at this little house and still imagine a young boy sitting by the window of the attic he shared with his three brothers, looking out to a world he could then himself only imagine. From those humble roots, as from so many humble beginnings in this country, grew the force of a driving dream. A dream that led to the remarkable journey that ends here today, where it all began. Beside the same tiny home, mail ordered from back east, near this towering oak tree, which back then was a mere seedling. President Nixon's journey across the American landscape mirrored that of his entire nation in this remarkable century. His life was bound up with the striving of our whole people, 
with our crises and our triumphs. When he became president, he took on challenges here at home on matters from cancer research to environmental protection, putting the power of the federal government where Republicans and Democrats had neglected to put it in the past in foreign policy. He came to the presidency at a time in our history when Americans were tempted to say we had had enough of the world. Instead, he knew we had to reach out to old friends and old enemies alike. He would not allow America to quit the world. Remarkably, he wrote nine of his ten books after he left the presidency, working his way back into the arena he so loved by writing and thinking and engaging us in his dialogue. For the past year, even in the final weeks of his life, he gave me his wise counsel, especially with regard to Russia. One thing in particular left a profound impression on me. Though this man was in his ninth decade, he had an incredibly sharp and vigorous and rigorous mind. As a public man, he always seemed to believe the greatest sin was remaining passive in the face of challenges, and he never stopped living by that creed. He gave of himself with intelligence and energy and devotion to duty, and his entire country owes him a debt of gratitude for that service. Oh yes, he knew great controversy amid defeat as well as victory. He made mistakes, and they, like his accomplishments, are part of his life and record. But the enduring lesson of Richard Nixon is that he never gave up being part of the action and passion of his times. He said many times that unless a person has a goal, a new mountain to climb, his spirit will die. Well, based on our last phone conversation and the letter he wrote me just a month ago, I can say that his spirit was very much alive to the very end. That is a great tribute to him, to his wonderful wife, Pat, to his children and to his grandchildren, whose love he so depended on and whose love he returned in full measure. Today is a day for his family, his friends, and his nation to remember President Nixon's life in totality. To them, let us say, may the day of judging President Nixon on anything less than his entire life and career come to a close. May we heed his call to maintain the will and the wisdom to build on America's greatest gift, its freedom to lead a world full of difficulty to the just and lasting peace he dreamed of. As it is written in the words of a hymn I heard in my church last Sunday, grant that I may realize that the trifling of life creates differences, but that in the higher things we are all one. In the twilight of his life, President Nixon knew that lesson will. It is, I feel certain, a faith he would want us all to keep. And so, on behalf of all four former presidents who are here, 
President Ford, President Carter, President Reagan, President Bush, and on behalf of a grateful nation, we bid farewell to Richard Milhouse Nixon. I think it's very difficult for any individual to indicate what his place in history is, uh, to write his own epitaph. I would say that as far as my life is concerned, I would hope what it would mean to most people is uh, that you must never give up. Uh, you must remember that you have to take risks in order to achieve anything, that sometimes you will suffer defeat. But the mark of any individual is to recover from defeat and disappointment and go on and give it his best shot. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.